Hey, good morning, Park Rogers Park. Merry Christmas, yeah? I think it's time. Merry Christmas. Um, thank you guys all for being here today. I know there's a lot of places you guys can be on Christmas Eve, so the fact you're here is special. And um, yeah, just thank you guys for being with us this morning. Um, I was thinking about telling you what I'm getting my, our kids for Christmas, but they're, they're sitting right there, so... I don't think I will. Summer looks kind of intrigued. Um, I'm excited for this year because you know that time where you've been finally waiting for your kids' toys to become your toys? That's, that's happening tomorrow. So if you're looking at me this week, please reach out to Ruth. I'm going to be locked in with the kids having some fun. Um, what I want to talk to you today is a little bit related to that, that, that feeling you get when you do open up a gift or you open up a present. I want to talk to you today a little bit for just the next... 10, 15 minutes, so it's not going to be very long at all. I want to talk to you today about joy. Um, it's one of those words that is a little bit elusive, a little bit hard to define. What, what is joy? What is that feeling of joy? And uh, yet we, we, we read in Scripture that it is something that we are to have. It's something that we are to, 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 to do. We are to rejoice, which means to reenact joy in our lives, making sure that joy is a consistent aspect and part of our lives. First Peter chapter 1 is these beautiful words we read there, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Isn't that a beautiful verse to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, a joy that we, that we can't contain, a joy that we can't articulate. One of um, the books that I like to, to, to look over every now and again is a, is a book of poems by a poet called Christian Wyman, and he, 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 he collates or edits this book to try and convey what joy is. He, he knows that, that, that joy isn't found in its definition, but in the experience of the manif many manifestations of joy. And so he published this book, and he called it Joy, and it's made up of 100 poems, with each being what he believes is an attempt to, to, to hold up joy, to try and, try and see joy, to try and grasp joy from the many different angles. He calls joy that durable, inexhaustible, essential, and inadequate word. And one of his queries is, where does joy come from? Where, where, where do we trace it back to? And so his book, it kind of, it feels like a kind of search for joy, trying to, trying to pin joy down, trying to pin joy down to try and bottle it up. Here are some of the examples of the poems that he includes. This one is called Summer Kitchen. And it reads like this, in June's high light, she stood at the sink with a glass of wine and listened and crushed garlic in late sunshine. I watched her cooking from my chair. She pressed her lips together, reached for kitchenware and tasted sauce from her fingertips. It's ready now. Come on, she said. You light the candle. We ate and talked and went to bed and slept. It was a miracle. Another, here's another one. My 50th year had come and gone. I sat a solitary man in a crowded London shop with an open book and an empty cup on the marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and 20 minutes more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and I could bless. 
interesting. Many of the, 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 the poems that are included in this book, they, they are moments that seem nothing much, that seem kind of ordinary. And yet, for anyone who knows the story of, of C.S. Lewis, who was an author and a professor, it, it was moments such as these, moments articulated in some of the poems in this book that brought C.S. Lewis to faith and belief in Christianity because he didn't know what to do with moments of joy. That, that on one hand, they felt trivial, but they also felt anything but as if the existence of moments such as these in his life, that they were breadcrumbs that were leading him to the source of joy. One way to put it would be to say that he was having experiences of joy that were thin, moments of, of joy that felt unresolved or, or moments of joy that felt incomplete and, and, and detached unless they, they spoke of something more. And in comparison, this is what makes Christian joy thick. Christian joy can still feel hard to pin down, it can be hard to bottle up, it can be hard to do joy or reenact joy or rejoice always, and yet Christian joy is not thin, it's thick because it's rooted, it's strong, it's stable, it's dependable, it's sure. Christian joy has a source that sheds light and meaning on every aspect of our lives, which C.S. Lewis went on to later, later write in his life. He wrote this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Let's, let's read together, let's meditate together on this Christmas Eve morning of the source of Christian joy. If you've got a Bible there, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We've been studying through Luke for a couple of months now. Turn to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 1 right down to verse 20. One where we read of the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2, verses 1. And it reads like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Quirinus was when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told, from, told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen 
as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray before we look at these verses. God, we thank you that we can come together. God, we thank you for this season of the year. We thank you for this rhythm in our year where we get to stop and we get to pause just the wonder of Christ's coming. God, I pray, God, today as we focus on these verses, God, that you will speak to us, encourage us, remind us of the beautiful, deeply rooted joy that we can have as followers of Jesus. Would you do that now within our body, within our church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins by placing the events that are about to take place on on the world stage. Verse 1, it reads like this, chapter 2 in Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And what we're being encouraged to see here is that Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, held a position of authority with incredible, all-encompassing power. Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, was actually believed that he was divine, that he was a god. And so Luke writes figuratively that his reign was over the entire world. And what Caesar calls for is the registration of every person living under his authority. And one of the key reasons for this registration was as simple as taxation. This is very similar to why we line up and register our vehicles here in Chicago in a a Western Union. The government wants to know who has a vehicle, how many vehicles, and they want us to pay for the privilege every year. And so we go and register and pay our taxes. And so in verse 3, it's the same thing. All went to be registered, each in his hometown, which was normal procedure to go back to the town from which you were, in which you were born. Which sets in motion in verse 4 of Luke chapter 2, Joseph and Mary leaving Galilee and going to the town of Bethlehem where Joseph was from. And then very quickly, in a matter of just a few verses, the whole reason why we're here this morning and the whole reason why we're celebrating this type of year, very quickly, Jesus is born. Verse verse 5 mentions that Mary is with child on this journey to Bethlehem. She is on the road and she is heavenly pregnant. Verse 6 of chapter 2 tells us that while they were in Bethlehem, it came time for her to give birth. And in verse 7, she does. Verse 7 reads, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And what's really noticeable In these verses, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, is that there is nothing that happens here that's particularly out of the ordinary. Even the the, the build-up, if you remember the last couple of weeks, on the run-up to Avenant, even the build-up back in chapter 1 seems to have more excitement and more wonder and more sense of the miraculous than the actual birth of Christ. In chapter 1, we had angels and we had miraculous conceptions and the recovery of Zachariah's ability to speak. And now when we might expect the, the, the pinnacle of, of, of intensity and, and the miraculous and the wonder and the spectacular, when we might expect to most clearly see awe and wonder of God's incarnation and the Word putting on flesh as the Messiah and the Savior of the world is born, rather the verses, they kind of run past us fairly mundanely. I don't know if you're ever reading your Bible and you're reading something that you know is a big deal and you know it's a scene or an event or a foundational truth 
that is a big deal, but you're surprised as you read it how few verses are actually given to it. We, we expect to meditate on what we're reading for longer, but we're finished reading before we even thought it had got started. That's kind of what, what occurs here in these verses at the birth of Christ. And not only that, not only is there the sense of the nothing spectacular in Christ's birth, but Christ's birth seems to occur firmly under the control and the reign of Caesar. Bear with me here because we're not going to be on this for very long today. Verse, verse 1 to 7 places the emperor of Rome as the cause behind Mary and Joseph having to, to travel even when Mary is heavenly pregnant. It, it is due to Caesar's decree that Mary is giving birth not in the comfort of her, of her home, but, but in a stable. There is nothing in these opening verses of chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, causing us to query the sheer dominance and grip of Caesar's authority over the circumstances leading up to Christ's birth. And this, this sense of the, the nothing spectacular, the nothing out of the ordinary, can be a very true articulation of what we might experience tomorrow. Or maybe you're already feeling it this Christmas, that there's a good chance some expectations aren't going to be met. Maybe, maybe the gift, or the toy, the, the, the presents that we really want to be under the tree tomorrow, maybe it's not going to be there. Maybe the people that we want to see tomorrow, the people that we want around our table tomorrow, maybe they won't be there. Maybe even over the years, the excitement and our, and our heightened expectations have just got lower and lower and lower. And not only that, but Christmas Day doesn't happen in a, in a vacuum. Which, where you are in life or what you're facing in life won't get paused tomorrow. You may be quietly worried tomorrow or quietly tired tomorrow. Just as it seemed there to be no reason to question that Mary and Joseph's journey was because of Caesar's decree or anything other than Caesar's decree, we too can feel pushed and pulled by forces, systems, people that are out of our control. That's verses 1 to 7. But look with me at verses 8 to 21. Beginning in verse 8, we, we, we get this split screen effect that as baby Jesus is being laid into a manger, we get to see what is happening in another location. But in verse 8, it makes it clear that this other location is in fact in the same region. We, we change locations, we, we cut to a different scene, but we are still in a region that is under the reign of Caesar. And yet who we are, yet, yet who we are introduced to in verse 8 are characters that are far, far, far from royalty. Verse 8 says, There were shepherds out in a field keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds, they, 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 they were peasants. They were located at the bottom of the ladder of power and privilege. Shepherds were your average, typical, common folk. And on this night, these shepherds, they're working the graveyard shift. When all of a sudden, we read in verse 9, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And when we frame this by what we know about the glory of God from the Old Testament, what we know about the glory of God, we know that to bear witness 
to the glory of God, to experience the glory of God is remarkable. It was a gift of God's grace given to the likes of Moses and Elijah and Isaiah, pillars of the faith. And the whole temple structure in Jerusalem was built around maintaining appropriate separation and distance between the people and the glory of God. But what we're reading here in chapter 2, verse 8, isn't occurring in the temple. This, this isn't in the holy of holies. Where we are right now in this passage is it's 3 a.m. and a 7-Eleven. You don't want to be in a 7-Eleven at 3 a.m. God's glory typically associated with all of the constraints and the controls of temple observance is now appearing before a group of graveyard shift farmhands. Then in verse 10, an angel speaks and says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And just when this scene could have very well been coming to a close, when we think it, it couldn't get any more spectacular than the glory of God shining around these farmers and shepherds, verse 13 reads, suddenly there with the angel that was speaking, a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared praising God, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. These shepherds in a field outside Jerusalem witnessed the inbreaking of heaven to earth. The, the sky cracks open and they witness another world. And this is maybe so obvious that it goes without saying, but when we place the ordinariness of verses 1 to 7 beside the spectacular scenes of verse 8 to 14, we realize what looked ordinary wasn't. In verses 1 to 7, it looks like Caesar was dictating the circumstances of Christ's birth but he wasn't. In verses 1 to 7, it, it looks like nobody special was being born, but the angel's announcement of good news of great joy reveals the fingerprints of God's sovereign planning over all the circumstances leading up to Christ's birth. Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, not because Mary and Joseph simply had to be there to register, but because Bethlehem, as the angel says, was the city of King David, and their child was being born to take up his throne, to reign, not only as the king of Israel, but as the king and as the savior of the world. What we read of in these verses, both in verses 1 to 7 and verses 8 to 14, both in the ordinary and in the spectacular, is of the inbreaking of a new kingdom that not only stands in opposition to the reign of Caesar, but that is a kingdom that calls into question everything that was previously thought and that we think about who God loves and who God visits and where God shows up and who God includes, and how God works. Church, in the story of Christ's birth, it becomes explicitly clear who Jesus came to identify with and who he came to save. 
He could have been born in a palace. He, he could have been born in a temple. He could have been placed in the most regal of cribs. But God became one of us to meet us where ones like us are found. In stables and in fields, in 7-Elevens and in Western unions. And how Jesus was born was an early sign of the kind of life that he would go on to live. One where he would become a friend to sinners and go on to touch the untouchable, to be the lifter of the lowly and the dignifier of the ordinary. And so the beauty of Christ's ordinary birth means that there is a joy that is inexpressible, that can be celebrated and felt and received in the most mundane of moments. The nothing spectacular, the nothing out of the ordinary may very well be the articulation of what you will experience this Christmas. There's a good chance some expectations aren't going to be met. You may be quietly worried tomorrow or feel pushed or pulled by what is out of your control. And yet, Church Rogers Park, there is joy, joy, joy to be found. Joy in Christ, knowing that a new king has come who came to give his life as a ransom for our sins and to usher in a new kingdom that has come and that is coming. And it is he who is the source of all true joy. He is the source to whom all the breadcrumbs in life lead. He is the answer to all the world's poetry and what all the world's poetry can be traced back to. Christian joy is rooted, it is strong, it is stable, it is dependable, it is sure. May you experience the joy of knowing Jesus this Christmas. Let's pray. God, we thank you that joy, joy, joy is found in Christ. We thank you that there is good news of great joy. We thank you in your coming, you came as a little baby to show us the way, that there's a better way to live, a way of humility and a way of kindness and a way of reaching out to those that are left out. God, I thank you in your coming, you made a way for our salvation, that we could receive forgiveness of sins and be reconciled back to God. We thank you for your work in our lives and in this church. God, I pray today and whatever happens over the next couple of days, we will know that there is joy to be found in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.